seated. Would you uh, just join me as we go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Lord, we thank you for uh, just the great privilege of being your church, and Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you shower on us. And Lord, even, even now as we have experienced just a, a night of rain and right now as we pause to open your word, the sun uh, starts to shine. And uh, Lord, it's just, just a reminder, Lord, that in the rain and in the sunshine, Lord, you are present, you are at work, although we may prefer one to the other. Allow, Lord, your spirit to work in us and through us and through your word, Lord, today in this moment. May our hearts be humble. May we be teachable. May we seek, Lord, to discern what it is you are desiring for each of us individually to learn and to grow in. And Lord, help me as your messenger simply to reflect your truth and that what you um, are teaching in this passage through John's gospel, Lord, would be what we walk away with, Lord, that we would grasp this, this wonderful um, picture, Lord, that we have before us. Lord, it's not the greatest story here. It's one that, that uh, is discouraging in one sense, and yet, Lord, it's, it's a passage, Lord, that we sit back in awe of, Lord, because you are at work, uh, Lord, even through the betrayal of a close friend. And, uh, Lord, so just allow us to be humble and teachable, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, in coming to this passage, um, I thought it would be just helpful for us to just begin by asking ourselves a question and that is, that is, you know, who are some, some famous traitors that we are um, aware of? And, and, you know, there's, there's a whole long list you could, you could have. I mean, if you're a sports fan, you probably have a, a team player that, you know, went to, you know, some other team that went, left your team and you consider that a traitor. That is nothing compared to the kind of people that we're going to be just thinking about here. First of all, I'm just going to think of three. The first one is Benedict Arnold. I mean, if you're an American historian, you realize that Benedict Arnold, who was an American general and served during the American Revolution, ultimately um, committed treason because he shifted his allegiance from uh, the United States, um, or to the Americans, really, the revolutionary force, to the British side, and actually um, wanted them to overrun um, uh, um, West Point. And ultimately, Benedict Arnold escaped by night and went to Britain. And you know what happened to him there? They didn't want him there either. They were so appalled that he would commit treason, they didn't want him around at all. It, didn't, it doesn't matter that they were, he was committing treason for them. They just didn't want him around. He ended up living in Canada, and he died there as a pauper. But a very, very famous traitor. Another one comes from uh, um, the arena of history, but also the arena of literature, and his name is Marcus Junius Brutus. Brutus, of course, was a nephew to Julius Caesar, and uh, you remember the story of Julius Caesar and how uh, the senators came against him and ultimately surrounded him and uh, knifed him to death. Well, certainly in Shakespeare's play, that's the way it is. Um, and uh, the, the famous words that supposedly were spoken by Caesar, even you... Brutus, or this kind of a, kind of a tender, kind of a very, very deep, thought-provoking question in the moment of his death. Now, there's probably a lot more. In fact, I went online, I was looking for, for lists of these things, and there, there's lots of them out there. But, but, but usually, as you go down these lists, 
the number one example of being a traitor or betraying is this man we know as Judas Iscariot. There's something about his treachery, there's something about his betrayal that is stunning for everyone who thinks about this topic. And we know what Judas has done in particular because we've, we've studied probably through the Gospels before. It's part of the fabric of our, of our culture. And when we talk about, hey, this person's a Judas, we already know what you mean. The very name itself carries with it the baggage of what he did in his betrayal. And so for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays Jesus with a kiss, but it's far more than simply betraying him with a kiss. It is handing him over to Rome, and um, it's really quite a sad picture. And yet, it is not sad in the sense of God's providence, because God ultimately was going to work through treachery to accomplish his purposes. Now, as we look at John's gospel, um, today the section we're going to look at is what I'm calling the beginning of Jesus' betrayal. And then in John's gospel from chapter 13 or 14, I should say, all the way through end of chapter 17, we have these instructions to the disciples. And then in chapter 18, you have the actual betrayal taking place. So you have Jesus in the garden, the soldiers coming, and that kind of stuff. Here we have the betrayal that begins in the upper room. And that's going to be our focus today as we think about um, this, this betrayal passage. And so as we, as we turn to John 13, 18 through 30, we're able to see three aspects of Jesus' betrayal. Um, its basis, um, its beginning, and ultimately its blackness. So let's look first of all then, what I'm calling the basis of his betrayal. As we begin at verse 18, we're going to see some things here that, that John is laying out for us that Jesus says that kind of give a backdrop, that kind of give a, a context, kind of give an awareness um, so that we can have some insight as to what's going on as this betrayal begins and unfolds there in the upper room. And it comes from the words of Jesus, it comes from what he says, but these are some foundational uh, realities for Christ's betrayal. You know, what, what, what actually is the reason for his betrayal? Why did it happen? Is there a divine reason why it took place? Or was it just some kind of a sad chance of fate that one of his disciples betrays him? So John is setting this, this theme up in this upper room with three examples for us. First of all, I want you to notice um, the, the basis of his betrayal is, first of all, his omniscience, his omniscience, okay? Jesus' omniscience uh, means that Jesus knows everything that is taking place around him. He's not unaware of, um, of all things that are going on. He is fully aware of the activities of men. So Judas was not acting when he was betraying in some way hidden from Jesus because Jesus is omniscient. He is fully aware of these things. And notice now, if you would please, uh, verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you, picking up from the, this, this latter context after he's washed the feet of the disciples. I'm not speaking of all of you, talking about his, the belief and some that would not believe. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There's something here that Jesus says that he knows. I know whom I have chosen. He says, I, 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 I know my disciples. 
I know their personalities. I know their strengths. I know their weaknesses. He knows that he has chosen all 12 of the disciples. So be careful here that you're not reading a theological position into what's going on. Did Jesus choose Judas to be a part of the 12? What's the answer? Yes. And think about it. Did Jesus choose Judas knowing full well the outcome of what was going to take place? The answer is yes. So Jesus here is saying, listen, I know whom I have chosen, which reminds us that Jesus chooses some to serve, but he also has chosen one to betray. Now don't think about this as some kind of robotic choice, like Judas had no choice in of himself to actually go that path. This is where divine sovereignty, human responsibility come together again. God is working his plan, and he's working his plan through people, but he's not working through people who are unwilling and not desiring to do the things that God is working through. So Judas is fully and completely desiring to do this. Verse 10 of John chapter 13 says this. We've, we've seen this before. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. He's already talking there about Judas. You're all clean, using the analogy of washing, but not every one of you is clean. Remember, we talked about that being kind of a picture of their conversion, of their regeneration, but not necessarily Judas. But he's chosen, but he's chosen for a purpose. His betrayal now is coming because Scripture must be fulfilled. Psalm 41, verse 9 is what Jesus is quoting there. And his betrayal will come from one chosen but willingly turns his back on Jesus. And so all of this is what Jesus knows. In other words, Jesus knows the context into which he must walk. He is fully aware that his betrayal is before him and who that betrayer is. Now, you know, we all say, oh, I really would love to know how life would go tomorrow. Well, if you knew what tomorrow was going to be like, maybe you wouldn't want life to go that way, right? Here's Jesus and he is continuing down the path, knowing full well what is going to take place. You say, oh, I know he's going to a cross. Right, yes, he's going to a cross, but there are things on the way to the cross that are also a struggle and painful, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So Jesus' omniscience, his omniscience, he's fully aware of what is going on around him. Second thing is this. I want you to notice um, his foreknowledge, his foreknowledge. And so what, what is all that about? Foreknowledge is the determining of the events before they happen. So omniscience is, is, is him fully knowing all that is happening. Foreknowledge is determining that they will happen. Now, just from a theological perspective, let's make sure we understand this. It's not that God somehow, because he is all-knowing, can therefore look down the corridor of time and say, aha, see, that's what's going to happen. And that's foreknowledge. That's not foreknowledge at all. In fact, that's foolishness because what that says is that God is limited by our choices and what we end up doing, and he's simply putting a stamp of approval on that. That's not the language of Scripture at all. God is fully and totally in control. Would you agree with that? He's fully aware, 
not just because he's back there looking, but he is at work working through. So foreknowledge is saying, this is the plan. This is happening because I want something to happen to you. And notice what it says in the next verse of Scripture, verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. What he's saying is, it's going to take place, right? But it hasn't taken place. Well, who's determining that it is going to take place? Well, Jesus is determining that it is going to take place because it's all part of the plan of redemption, and it goes through betrayal. And I want you to know that it's going to take place so that when it does take place, you can look back and you can say, aha, we were told that, and we were told that so that we would what? Believe. This is Jesus' foreknowledge on display for us. This will happen so that you will believe. Now, there's going to be lots of things for them to remember as they're sitting, talking there in the upper room. A lot of, a lot of topics and discussions are going to take place, but ultimately Jesus wants them to be able to look back and think back so that they can believe. But not just believe, but believe what? That I am He. It's that great I am expression again, right? That he's already addressed a couple of times in this gospel. That I am is talking about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. The same one that that Moses is addressing. I am. Tell him I am sent me. That's the same person. So Jesus here is being identified or identifying himself as the I am that they would ultimately believe. So his omniscience kind of gives some perspective. His foreknowledge gives some perspective. And I'm going to say also this. The basis of his betrayal is explained also by his gospel. Well, we need to think through this a little bit, okay? What we have here in verse 20 is in seed form the Great Commission. I just want you to see what Jesus says here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Just try and get the flow of thoughts here. God the Father sent God the Son. And Jesus then sends those who are his followers to others, right? All right, that in a sense is a very, very seed form of the Great Commission. In other words, you're going to be sent. And why would anyone receive what you say? It's because you have something to say, right? And what is the something you have to say? It's the gospel. That's why Jesus is coming to this earth. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we recognize that the Father is in heaven who is ordaining all these events. It's all part of this gospel. So the gospel unfolding, the gospel being proclaimed is all foundational for what is going to be happening now as we look at the betrayal of Jesus. Now, there's something else, though, that's helpful here as we think about um, verse 20. Uh, This is the beginning of a reminder that the disciples' story is far from over. Jesus' story, might want to say, on the earth, is slowly coming to an end. The disciples' story on the earth is what? It's just beginning to begin, 
Okay, I mean, it's just kind of in that seed form. And so that's why we have this wonderful reality taking place. And these disciples in just a few hours are going to need this truth because there's going to be heartache, there's going to be disillusionment, there's going to be confusion that comes as a result of Jesus being taken and him ultimately going to a cross and what's happening, what's going on in this world. Uh, here's our master and what did he do? And he's up there, he's falling apart. And they're going to need to remember what Jesus says. And they're going to need to remember that they are ultimately sent. And it's also a reminder that Christ's betrayal is not an accident. It's not something that took place out of his control. It is not human in- interference that undermines God's divine plan. Instead, we are taught that the disciples have been chosen, that they will believe, and they will be sent out. Okay? This is very, very foundational, very, very crystal clear for them. Here is this this package deal then. Those words, chosen, believed, sent out. Just kind of mark these three verses as far as what what Jesus is saying about these disciples. So this is certainty and the road that is providentially paved for Jesus to fulfill his mission. He knew about it. It was his purpose. It was foundational for the disciples' ministry ministry when Jesus was gone. So here's this backdrop. Here's the basis of this betrayal explained. He knows about it, it's part of his plan, and it's also part of the unfolding of the gospel, and those disciples are right in the thick of it all the way along. All right, now, let's actually look at the beginning of the betrayal. This is the interaction then around that table with Jesus and those who are there. So in order for us to, to really gather in the scene, we need to take note of who, who's sitting around the upper room table. And we want to begin, of course, um, with Jesus. But we're told here that Jesus is troubled. He's troubled. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, there's something incredibly powerful, something very moving in the words of this verse that we could just, you know, blow by if we're not careful. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. He testifies, and he says, truly, truly. These are, these are words that, 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 that have a lot more oomph to them. The word troubled. The idea there is to be stirred up, to, to, to experience revulsion, agitation, horror, anxiety. Jesus knows what he has come to do, and he's troubled. We've already seen this word be used by John to describe Jesus and what's going on with Jesus. Just flip back in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 27. The context here is Jesus being troubled about the big picture of the Passion Week, him going to the cross. And notice what it says. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. In other words, I am troubled, I am stirred up, I am am anxious, I'm horrified, I am concerned about what lies before me, and, and I could say, oh what, you know, deliver me? Absolutely not. I have been sent here for a purpose. And so there, there's this resolve. Now, friends, can I just pause here and just just share a couple of thoughts with with you? Here is an example of Jesus who is troubled in his spirit, 
who's concerned about what lies before him, and you might want to say is really experiencing the emotions of all that he is going through, and yet he fights to be resolved to do what his father wants him to do. Have you ever felt that way? (laughs) God, I don't feel like this. I don't feel like restoring this relationship. I don't feel like disciplining my children or working on my marriage. I don't feel like doing the right thing. I feel like doing what I want to do to, to, to bypass those things so that I can just feel better about myself. But there's something in me that is driving me, that reminds me, that convicts me. And it's not a something, it's a person. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work in me. So I I find myself being resolved to do what the Father desires me to do, what I know to be true. So we fight against our feelings to do the things that God is calling us to do. So there's certainly ways that we can be exactly like Jesus here. Now we get a little glimpse of why Jesus is so troubled from verse 18. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Again, that's a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9. And here this is a psalm talking about David, who is a type of Christ, and what it says there in, in, in that passage there about David. Now let me just pause here and just talk about what does it mean to be a type of Christ. Uh, there are a number of individuals, and actually even situations, in the Old Testament, as you move through the Old Testament, that at at times kind of rise up and are clearly pointers to who Jesus is and and give some greater picture about our understanding of who Jesus is. And that, one of those people is David. And we consider David a type of Christ, not in everything that he did, but in certain aspects of what he did, okay? And it's a whole topic for another time. And you look back here and we see here, David is troubled in his spirit. Notice what Psalm 41, verse 9 says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's turned on me. What does it mean to lift a heel? I mean, if someone lifts a heel against you, it's not a good thing, right? Um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're stomping on someone. You're turning on someone. You're kicking someone away. So who was David's close friend? His name was Ahithophel, his trusted counselor and friend. The story is basically this. When David's son, Absalom, rebelled against his father David, Ahithophel, his trusted and loyal, at least up to that point, counselor and friend, ended up siding with Absalom. And here is how it is described and how David deals with this in Psalm 55, verse 12. Turn, if you would, please. Psalm 55, verse 12. We just want to read a few verses and just get the just get the tone of what is going on here so that we ultimately can read that back into what Jesus is experiencing as he is there in the upper room with his disciples. Psalm 55, verse 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. 
This is what's going on. He's, he's, he's troubled. He's consumed. This is David just struggling with the betrayal of his friend, with Ahithophel and, and his choice and how he turned on him. Not an enemy, not an adversary, but an equal, a friend. And now as we look at our text, we're reminded that Jesus is greater than David. And he is troubled that one of his disciples would betray him. See, Jesus is not some kind of, I want to say, slab of cement who feels nothing and is just going about the mechanics of redemption. Jesus is fully human. And the fact that he's fully human means that this stuff is painful. That betrayal is painful. That it hurts. It's discouraging. His friend, his companion, for three years is about to betray him, and he is grieved. So it's just a great picture here of Jesus in his humanity relating to us. And so what comes to mind is Hebrews 5, 7 through 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. It's also a reminder of Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise, talking about Christ, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the evil. Jesus partook of the same things that you and I experience. If you've experienced betrayal in your life, Jesus has experienced it. You've experienced being close with someone, being a companion with someone, working through life with someone, and all of a sudden they just turn on you completely. Jesus understands what that's like. And friends, it was necessary for Jesus to have that betrayal in order for that cross to be his destination. That was the avenue through which he had to walk. But he does that in his complete humanity, experiencing and feeling and struggling with the, th- the same things that we would struggle with. So he shares in our nature and became liable to everything that would come to us. And so we see him troubled in spirit and deeply disturbed, and, and he understands us. He feels like we feel. Yet, at the same time, he is resolute to do his Father's will, and that is to endure the suffering and to hang on the cross for the sins of the world. So there's Jesus, who is troubled, sitting at this table. Then we notice John, who is loved. After Jesus spoke, verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at his side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now to get, get the picture of what's going on here, we need to remind ourselves of the positioning of the disciples around the table. They would, the table would be in the middle, their heads would be toward the table, their feet would be out, and they would be leaning on their left elbow. That's the typical picture of what's going on here. Okay. So there was like kind of intimate conversations that could take place. 
And then there was also conversations with everyone. So you have the ability to speak to the whole group. You also have the ability to look someone very close in the face, especially if they're on the right hand and on the left, and say something that no one else would hear. So not everything that we find in this text is something that everyone sitting around was privy to. Having heard Jesus talk about one of them betraying him, the disciples are shocked. Understandably so. I mean, they've already been shocked about the fact that Jesus washed their feet in that upper room, and now Jesus comes and says, guess what, one of you is going to betray me. So they're looking around, they're confused. And Peter, who is not next to Jesus, he's somewhere around the circle here, he looks at the person who is next to Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he nods at him so that he'll ask him, who is it? Ask him, who is it going to be? Okay? And Jesus answered, verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when I dip the bread and give it, that person who, whom I give it to will be the one who will betray me. Now, we don't think that it, it happened in a, in a public way in the sense that he responded that way to everyone. It seems like he responded that way to John based on how the disciples responded after that because they don't know why Judas is leaving. Now, who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Now, we know because we've been studying through the Gospel of John that this is talking about John himself. This is the first of five usages that uh, describe, that John uses that expression to describe himself. It happens then here at this betrayal. It happens at the foot of the cross where, where Jesus entrusts Mary to John's care. It happens after the resurrection. It happens with Peter while they're um, by the Sea of Tiberias. And at the end of the gospel, um, we're told that the person whom Jesus loved is the same one that's writing this gospel. And so you put all those things together, a number of other things together, you determine, okay, John is the author of this gospel, and therefore he's writing about himself. This is a way that he's identifying himself. So, so you know, the question might be, from someone that, that maybe, you know, hasn't, hasn't heard this before, you know, who is John to go around saying that he is the one whom Jesus loved? You know, who, where does he get off saying, you know, and I'm the one that Jesus loved? There's a disciple, I'm the one who loved. He's, he's not being arrogant here at all. That's not the tone of what's going on at all. It's not like he's walking around with the disciples in town and he says, well, this is Peter and, you know, this is uh, Nathaniel and I am the one that Jesus loved. I mean, that's, that's not the point. That's not how it's being communicated. What's being communicated here is, is John purposely not to draw attention to himself and not to be the focus of any undue praise identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, let me ask you a question. Whom did Jesus love in that upper room? Was it John? Well, yes. Was it Peter? Yes. Was it Nathaniel and Thomas? And yes. Was it Judas? Yes. This is a, a description, really, of all who are the objects of his love. John 
is consumed with the fact that he is loved by Jesus. This is not pride. This is not arrogance. This is wonder. He could use a lot of things to describe himself as, but he chooses to use the one whom Jesus loved. Now, we, we, we get a better picture of this as we go to 1 John and a couple of passages in 1 John. 1 John 3, 1. Here's what John says now in this letter. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. See what kind of love we're the recipients of? Then chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or covering or satisfaction for our sins. John is in awe that Jesus loves him. He never got over it. The question is, have you? And we could just breeze by this little statement here. But the question is, do we love Jesus? And I'm not giving some, you know, some degrees of love here, but I'm just asking the question, are you still hungering and thirsting after Jesus? Are you still longing to be in his presence? Are you still longing to interact with him through his word by virtue of the Holy Spirit's activity and his devotional life that he's called us to? Are you still pursuing and in awe and bathing yourself in the love that you get only from Jesus? Or has your walk with him become mechanical? Has your walk with him become something that is just part of the fabric of what you do every week because you know you are a Christian? Or are you in awe of his love? You know, it may be that because of the abuse of the love of God out there that we want to kind of shy away from the word love and be the recipients of love because it's kind of this warm, fuzzy thing. And listen, don't abandon what is beautiful because other people abuse it. We are the recipients of his love. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his kindness. We don't deserve all that he gives us. So are we thankful for it? And are we seeking to grow in it? And is it the basis for our obedience? And do we continue to pursue him knowing that he consistently loves us? There's Jesus who is troubled. There's John who is loved. And now, of course, there is Judas who is departing. It's quite the picture, really. Verse 26, and Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now it would, it would appear that Jesus was, sorry, Judas was on the left of Jesus, which is considered to be the position of greatest honor. John on Jesus' right, Judas on Jesus' left. It would also appear that Jesus um, was a great friend of Judas. Now, that's a hard pill for us to swallow because we have all the baggage of knowing that he's a betrayer. But let me ask you, how do the disciples respond when Jesus says that one of you is going to betray me? What? They're not thinking, oh yeah, well, we knew it was going to be Judas. You know, we know that. 
No, it's a hard pill for us to swallow because we've already pegged him as the betrayer. And it's even harder for us to think that maybe, even maybe, Jesus had a special friendship with him. But let me ask you a question. What kind of betrayal is the worst kind of betrayal? The kind of betrayal that comes from the closest friend. I think that at times we think of Judas as barely making it into the band of brothers called the disciples. You know, they're, they're all, they've all been chosen. It's like there's one more spot, and here comes Judas, and everyone's like, oh, no, don't pick him. Don't pick him. He's trouble. He's trouble. And Jesus is like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do some special favors today, extra, 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 extra grace, and maybe bring him in. He can be a part of the group. No, that's not how it played out at all. They had no clue. Or maybe there's this idea that maybe, you know, that, that the disciples just kind of kept Judas on the fringes. What was Judas' responsibility? Huh? Main responsibility. He, he, was, he was in charge of maintaining the finances. If a person is in charge of maintaining the finances, they're not on the fringe. You want them at the heart of what's going on. You probably trust that person. You probably have great respect for that person. And just remember, Judas participated in all the things that the rest of the disciples participated in. He went out evangelizing. He preached. He may have somehow performed miracles. He heard Jesus teach. He sat under him. He had the, those, those family talks just with the disciples, heart to heart. And based on this and his positioning, it's very possible that he had some special intimate times as a friend with Jesus. Another possibility, though, is that Jesus sees this as the last opportunity to appeal to Jesus, Judas, and that's why he is sitting next to him. And in ancient times, to dip a piece of bread and to hand it to someone sitting around the table was a token of friendship. It was a, a demonstration of relationship. It was a demonstration of intimacy with that person. So Jesus dips the bread and hands it to Judas. And he, as he's handing it to him, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, here's, here's one last chance. Here's one last opportunity. Here's, here's one more warning that I'm giving you, loving warning that I'm giving you. One writer put it, said it this way, Jesus was never nearer to Judas, and Judas was never nearer to Jesus than when he took and dipped that bread. The last moment of possibility, the love of Jesus, is still holding out for Judas. But Judas, hardened by his treacherous heart, takes the bread. Now, if Judas's betrayal was simply mechanical, would Jesus even care about these things? Would he be troubled? No, because when he entered into this world, he took on himself the form of a servant, and in doing that, he feels and he lives and he struggles with the same things that we struggle with. So that when betrayal is looking him in the face, over a dipped piece of bread, 
He feels it. He struggles with it. It's real. It's penetrating. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now likely if he was right next to him, this is a very close whisper. What you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus already knew. He knew what was going on. He knew the betrayal was before him. Now, why did Judas betray Jesus? The answer to that question is this, because Judas was a hypocrite. He fooled everyone, but he didn't fool Jesus. He chose to do what he was doing. Now, please understand that. It wasn't that Judas was somehow a disciple going merrily on his way with the rest of the disciples, enjoying life and serving Jesus, and all of a sudden, you know, the devil comes and goes, "Wop! I'm going to use you. Now it's completely out of control, and Judas is now just this, this, this kind of walking zombie, so to speak, for the devil. That's not, that's not the flow of things at all. Judas had already in his mind and his heart gotten to the place where he was betraying Jesus. And that results then in being open for the devil to enter into him. Okay? Now, outwardly, Judas takes the token of friendship, but internally, he hates Jesus. Instead, he decides to reject Christ's appeal, and he goes the way of the devil, and when Satan enters Judas, Jesus sends him on his way. Now, please understand, Judas' last choice to betray Christ was the last choice based on a succession of choices. Judas' decision was not a one-off decision, but one that was the result of ongoing daily activity and daily brooding. And we get a little bit of window in that when you see some of the characteristics of Judas in the Gospels. Some thought processes. There's a story told by Paul White, who's a medical missionary in Tanzania. It's a story about a hunter by the name of Perembi who went searching for a leopard to kill in order to gain money from the actual skin and killed the leopard. It happened to be a mom. And off to the side was this little baby cub. And so he takes the little baby cub back to his family. It's a little cuddly, cute thing. And it's great. He thought the children would enjoy it, and they had fun with it, and they fed it, and all the you know milk and scraps and all that kind of stuff. And slowly, that leopard grew up, and as it grew up, it was just part of the family, part of the fabric of what was going on. And um, the kids enjoyed it; they played with it, just had a good time. And one day, that leopard became an adult. Still, a very, very nice leopard, a very kind leopard except for one of the children ended up having a wound and allowed that leopard to lick its wound. And once it tasted blood, its character changed. The real leopard came out, killed the child, killed the hunter. And it was only the chieftain who fought off that leopard. He ultimately was harmed pretty, pretty severely in that, in that context. But little leopards become big leopards, and big leopards kill. I was just using that analogy in that picture. Little sins 
become big sins that will separate us from God. Now just, just think with me on this. The devil takes over by stages that will eventually take us into bondage. That is how it works, friends. That first drink may be the beginning of a problem with drunkenness. That first experience with drugs may be the first step in the road to lifelong addiction. Of course, that person never meant for it to go that far or to be an addict, but it was that first temptation, that first grasp, that first indulgence. The first experience with sex outside of marriage It's the same thing. Oh, it's fun. It was great. No one will know. And before long, the bondage of sexual sin has resulted in love having lost completely its meaning. You see, because we take something that seems small, little steps along the way until ultimately we are in bondage. And friends, that is a biblical principle we've got to be careful of. It doesn't start out with one big thing. It starts out with little things along the way that grow and grow and grow. And you are now opened up to not doing what God wants you to do or open up from being separated from God's purposes in your life because of these little sins that just add up and they get bigger. And when they get bigger, they separate us from God. Now, friends, we all struggle with sin, right? And we have lots of, lots of leopards in all of us, so to speak, that we have allowed to grow. And some of us are trying to beat them down, trying to mortify the flesh and, and take God's truth and apply it to, his, uh, to, to our souls and, and, and work on those sins. And we know that our sin is paid for if we have been, been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but we also know that having entered into that relationship, that ongoing sin harms our relationship with Christ, and so we want to make sure that we're stripping back that sin through confession and repentance and forgiveness. And yet, if we just don't give attention to it, these, these sins will begin to grab us again and keep us in bondage. Now, we're not eternally in bondage because we're in Christ, but we are practically at times in bondage because of choices that we make. Judas played around with sin and ended up as the devil's slave. All the while, he was with Jesus, he was listening to Jesus, he was evangelizing in his name, he was watching Jesus do miracles. And friends, it's a warning to us. So we have these three groups. Jesus, John, who I think is also a picture of the rest of the disciples who are loved, and there's Judas who is departing. He's beginning this road toward betrayal. And as we read on, we notice finally the blackness of his betrayal exposed. What we now see is ignorance on the part of the disciples. Not ignorance because they are blind, but simply ignorance because they didn't hear or they weren't aware. They're trying to figure it all out. And then ultimately darkness on the part of Judas. All right? Let's just read this passage together, verse 28 through verse 30. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. I mean, they, they, see, they, they, they had complete integrity in their thinking about, G, about Judas and what he was doing. 
or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. He immediately went out. And then you have these four words that are incredibly powerful. And it was night. Now friends say, well, isn't it just describing what it was like outside? Yes, it is. But what's interesting about this is this was Passover. And at Passover, there is a full moon. So there's something else going on here than simply saying, and it was night. There is this theme in John's gospel about darkness and light. And when Judas leaves that room, get this, he is leaving that room for the very last time. He is not returning to be with Jesus except in betrayal. He is no longer going to be fellowshipping with those disciples. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. The light has shone in the darkness, but those who are in the darkness love the darkness more than light. It's an incredible, powerful picture of the betrayal of this man being a clear understanding of the darkness of the heart of any man who would shake his fist at Jesus. He walks away. He goes away from that room and he goes away from God forever as a friend, as someone who has an opportunity. He has made his choice. Now, remember, God is omniscient. <laughs> his foreknowledge, working his plan. The grace of the gospel is at work. But Judas, knowing that, having seen it many times, having heard the gospel many times, having interacted with Jesus many times, chooses the path of betrayal. 30 pieces of silver. And then later when he encounters him, what does he do? He kisses him. And then, of course, we see him remorseful. Friends, this morning as we've looked at this passage, I just, just want to leave you just with maybe a couple of thoughts. And these are somewhat spontaneous. Number one, let us remember that Jesus went to that cross in full humanity. He suffered, he endured hardship, not simply in a mechanical way. And when he suffered and when he um, was beaten, when he was betrayed, all of these things affected him in his humanity, meaning he felt them for what they really were. All that suffering was part of the road and the path to the cross. And this morning as we celebrate the Lord's table, you know, we remember his body. We remember all that was done to him in his body. And we also remember the blood that was shed on our behalf.
The second thing I just want you to be mindful of is this. Is that although you're a child of God, you still have an ongoing struggle with sin. Don't be passive about it. Learn what God's word has to say about it. Now friends, hear this. As God's children, we are not trying to beat each other over the head with the fact that we sin. And we should not then be afraid to talk about sin. But when we talk about sin, the purpose of that is to alert one another to the fact that sin is still actively at work in us, and because that is true, therefore we need God's help to mortify that sin. That means to put it to death. So the reality is we are all sinners struggling with sin who need instruction about that sin. Yes, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ because we've embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is our permanent established relationship with him that will never change but there is an ongoing sanctification that he has called us to while we were living on this earth to become holy like we are called or declared holy to exercise ourselves toward godliness and so friends Allow God to speak to you in the arena of sin, even when you're a child of God, especially when you're a child of God. And learn to grow. And you know what? Take it on the chin when the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin so that you can recognize what's going on, and then you can know what to do. And one of the problems within American Christian culture is you walk into a church and like, ah, we don't want to hear about sin. You're beating us over the head with sin. Friends, our problem is what? Sin. Now, it's, it's true. As a pastor, I could be beating you over the head with it. We as a church family could be beating each other over there. We could be abusive with it. The, the, the point here, though, is to recognize that we have it and that God's word speaks to it and there can be resolve. But that resolve only comes through Jesus Christ. And that resolve is made clear in his word. Jesus went to a cross, hung there for us. Now that we've embraced him as Lord and Savior, we actually go to that cross every day and apply the principles of that cross to our lives. We are daily dying to self, putting to death that sin that is still present in our lives.